Good morning. Uh, my name is Katie Connolly, and our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. At this point in our service, kids up through fifth grade get to go to their groups, their classes. Um, can I have the teachers, leaders come on down to the front? And as they're coming down to the front, um, Matthew, I think, can you pop to the next slide that's after that, the next one? this one. I wanted to just tell all parents and help us to understand how we approach kids um, at this church. Not all of you have children or you don't have children who are of age to go out, but our three goals are to keep them safe, help them to connect with one another, and to have fun in order to reveal Jesus to them and help them to grow up as kids who never know a day apart from Jesus Christ. So we value these things even in the order in which we have listed them there because we, we do um, we value keeping kids safe. If you'd like to be a part of our child protection training, it's coming up in two weeks. We want kids to connect to one another so that by the time they're in middle school and high school, they know some other kids, even if they don't go to the same elementary school. And lastly, we do want them to have fun to help them to see that Jesus brings life to the full to them, even as we're giving them Bible lessons and teaching them about Jesus. If you have questions about our kids' ministry, you can see Denise Weinig down here. Denise is our children's ministry coordinator and is this amazing woman who does lots of great stuff for our kids. Let's pray for our kids before we send them out. So together we pray. Heavenly Father, you have blessed this church with the joy and care of children. Give us courage patience, wisdom, and the guidance of your Spirit as we bring them up in the faith. May they never know a day apart from you, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. So first, the third through fifth graders, third, fourth, and fifth graders head out with Susan Payne, I think, or maybe not. Who's my line leader for third through fifth? Denise, line leader for third through fifth. Kate Scarston, sorry, I had the wrong name down. Third through fifth, Kate Scarston. I'm just gonna look at you guys. My K through two line leader is next, third through fifth first, and then next is Patrick Connolly, who is with our K through two. So K through two can find Patrick Connolly right here. Our teacher today is Eric Ha, and the, nope, teacher is, Jake Gramlick, sorry, all the wrong names here. Jake Gramlick and our Jim, Kimberly Mayer, okay. And then our last group that's going to go out, it will be the youngest, but we also have a nursery in the back. Um, if you'd like to go check a kid in and bring them back afterwards, our pre-K, so this is our three and four-year-olds, a class we're just starting, is going to be over here with Sarah Sheets and Jane Picardi. So they're heading out right here. So three and four-year-olds, if you have any three and four-year-olds, you can take them there. Head on out, three and four-year-olds. And again, a nursery in the back over there. 
think that's everybody. The great de-churching, the great de-churching began about 25 years ago. According to a book titled The Great De-Churching that just came out by Jim Davis and Michael Graham, they're reviewing all sorts of data about the number of people who have left the church in the past 25 years in America. The number that they're looking at is 40 million adults. That's 15% of the U.S. adult population have left the church in the past 25 years. It's the fastest abandoning of Christianity or the church that's ever happened in U.S. history. One way to look at it was a survey that said in the early 70s, only 17% of adults had only been to church once a year or never at all, 17% in 1970s. But by 2021, almost half of all Americans had never been to church at all in the past year or only gone maybe once, like at Christmas or Easter. And it's for the first time in U.S. history that half of the U.S. population, over half of the U.S. population does not have a church home. And if we were, they kind of try to examine in the book why some of that is happening, and some of it is maybe some of the obvious things we would think about, kind of we become a more secular modern culture. Um, people have rejected Christianity because they just disagree with Christian teaching and some of its stances in relation to their belief systems um, about ethics or other ways of life. There's also been a lot of scandals. People have dealt with the church abuse scandals with leaders who have abandoned their faithfulness or um, hurt Christians or people. Politics on both sides have hurt Christianity and people have decided to leave because of what they viewed as over-political churches. But one of the things that these people found in their study was they were surprised at how big of a reason, and maybe even one of the biggest drivers, was economic and social. So not anger, not being hurt by the church, but actually people's jobs and lifestyle and social circles and ways of living out their life had pulled them away and they had stopped going to church altogether. It was, they'd gotten out of the habit, or it was what was called a casual de-churching, not an intentional de-churching. One example that they give in, this, in the book is of Tom. Tom was a guy who um, really came to faith in college because of a guy who was a little bit older than him. He'd grown up as a Christian, sort of going to church, but never taking it that seriously. But in college, he got really serious because a guy two years older who played on the same baseball as team for that college. He got really involved in a fellowship group, started going to church all the time, was really excited about his faith. Then the guy who was two years older than him graduated he was dealing with injuries in his own life, some other challenges, and he just stopped going on Sundays, stopped going to the fellowship group. A few years later, he got out of college, ended up getting married, a good job, having kids. The job became more intense, high intense, and over a decade later, living in another city, he hadn't been to church in years. Hannah was another one that they talk about. Hannah was somebody who grew up with a girl across the street who became her best friend when the girl moved in. And the girl wanted to go to church every week, and so the girl dragged Hannah to church. The two of them became best friends, and she was growing in her faith to the point when she went off to college, she was super serious about everything that she wanted to do in her faith and life. And then even out of college, she found a church, got married, tried to keep going to church, but then she had trouble getting pregnant. Eventually, in her 30s, got pregnant. It was a challenging pregnancy, and COVID-19 hit. And so 
between the challenging pregnancy and COVID-19, it had been over three years since she'd been in a church. And she just felt like it was just awkward and weird and wasn't really sure she could go back. So some of it has to do with patterns and rhythms that we've been in, but also I've found this, is even as Christians, I don't know that we view the church, and I'm not just saying this church, any church, or the church worldwide as necessary. Two-thirds of American Christians, people who self-identify as Christians, say it's just as good to worship alone, at home, by yourself. And yet, and yet if we look at the Bible, if we look at history, the church is God's plan for the world. The church is what God has been doing all along for the past 2,000 years, to continue His presence and His plan of redemption from the time that Jesus ascended into heaven until He comes again. And so, over the next, uh, this whole fall, we're going to be in a series that we are titling you, but you plural, ustedes, which I think is you plural in Spanish, right? Yins, y'all, and yous, for those of you who are regionally from other places. Yins is really just for me, because it's only in Pittsburgh that they say yins. There's also uins, which is sort of a, you know, uh, part of that whole area as well. But it's basically you plural, and here's what you find is if you look at the Bible, there are commands and there are promises all throughout the New Testament, and pretty much every one of them is you plural. So, for example, in Ephesians 2, that famous verse that says, for it is by grace you have been saved, it actually says, for it is by grace y'all have been saved. It is by grace yins have been saved. It's not you, individuals, have been saved. Christ's death on the cross was the salvation of y'all, you all, ustedes. And that means this, that God's act of salvation in Jesus Christ is about calling and forming a people to be His people in the world, to be the people of salvation, enjoying it, and we don't enjoy the fullness of all that God has to offer for us when we are by ourselves. And so, over the next however many weeks, we're going to do something we don't often do, but occasionally do, and so if you've got one of these um, cards that can kind of guide you in the series and the verses that we're going to be looking at. And it's what we would call a biblical theology. A biblical theology is when you take a topic and look at what it says all across the Bible, or for this case, it's just what it says in the New Testament. So what does God have to say about becoming God's people in the New Testament? And we'll look at passages like our one today about being a city on a hill, uh, about uh, the Jesus calling the 12, what it's like to be uh, in relationship with one another, and ultimately what God's vision is for us, His people, as the bride of Christ. And in order, in doing that, we're not going to be hitting at every topic that you could look at in, uh, in teaching about what it is to be a church or a community, but we're going to look through the Gospels, some of the letters of Paul, some of the later ones, and finish in Revelation in December. The aim is this, I want to renew our vision of who God is calling us to be. And why I want that is because I want us to experience God's presence, His healing, and His grace more than we do right now. And ideally, through a church community. <laughs> so that we become the kind of people who also experience God and enable others to experience God's love and mercy for them. So let me pray for today 
and for the next three months. God, our Father, you have called us into community to be brothers and sisters, a family, a city, a church. Prepare our hearts and our lives to be reoriented to your purposes for us together. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me go back into our passage in verses 13 to 16 of Matthew 5. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on, the stand, on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus says this. It's Jesus who says this, and it's in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is when Jesus is off in the wilderness with a bunch of people who are his disciples, people who are following him and turning to him as the Messiah. They're out in the wilderness, and what he is doing is gathering people almost like Moses did, leading the people in the wilderness. And he's calling them to be, in the Sermon on the Mount, a new people of God. Israel was God's people throughout the Old Testament, and Jesus is saying, look, now God is doing something new in me, Jesus, and those who follow me are a part of what God is doing. We are God's people in this world. And he kept talking about a kingdom of God that was at hand, that he had come to bring in God's purposes, God's reign on the earth, and that his followers, his disciple, disciples, the people who said, we follow Jesus, were meant to live out Jesus' kingdom purposes. They were to be a kingdom counterculture to the world around them, both the religious culture of Judaism and the pagan culture of Rome and, and the Greek world. They were called to be a new kingdom people, and Jesus calls his disciples specifically in our passage to be salt and light. Now, these are kind of obvious metaphors, and if you've heard sermons on this, you've heard this before, but light's a pretty obvious one. We're pretty used to it. You walk into a room and you turn on a light switch, and it's light. All of a sudden, you can see. So a completely dark room, you turn on the light, now I can see, I can find my way through. What light does is it drives out darkness. If you're in a completely dark room, a closet, and you turn on a light, or you're in a cave, and you put on the headlamp, it goes from darkness to having light instantly. The light drives out the darkness. The salt one, of course, has you know, a couple of reasons, and people talk about salt being used for flavoring and that sort of thing, but in the ancient world, it was more commonly used for preservatives. You would literally take salt and cake it around meat. So meat would decay. You take a piece of lamb or goat, and you take the piece of meat and you set it on the counter, and it's going to decay in a couple of days, maybe in a day, right? Well, in the ancient world without electricity, and if you weren't up in the north or the far south where it was really cold, your meat would decay very quickly. So after you slaughtered an animal or something you had hunted, you would take it and cut it into pieces or strips of meat, cake it in salt, and then you would take those salt-caked pieces of meat and shove them in a jar filled with more salt. It's like beef jerky on salt. But it would not decay. But in order for it to work, you had to actually put the salt on the meat, right? 
And that's essentially what Jesus is getting at when he says if salt loses its saltiness, well, salt can't lose its saltiness, but salt cannot be doing what it's supposed to be doing, which is being on the meat. Jesus is saying similarly, a light under a basket is useless. You need to light the room. And so you take the little oil lamp that they had, it'd be like having one candle for your whole house, and you would light the whole room, the whole house with it. Jesus' followers, then, were called to be different and distinct from the world around them. Hey, you are not meat, you are not the darkness, you're salt and light, but you're supposed to be involved and affecting the world around you, pushing onto the culture and the world around you. And specifically, then, he, he gives this metaphor where he talks about being um, a city on a hill. He says, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And I want to push more into that one today. So a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. That, that word city, right, a city, um, is, is actually a huge part of what God is doing in the world uh, according to the Bible. So the biblical story begins in the Garden of Eden, right? It begins in a garden, an idyllic garden. But where does the story end in the end of Revelation? It doesn't end in another garden. It ends in a city. Revelation 21 talks about the city of God coming down and God dwelling with people and all people coming to the city of God, the new Jerusalem, in a place where there would be no need for sun or moon because God and God's presence would be the light. So the vision of the future is of a city lighting everything whose light is God. In the Old Testament, the city and especially the city on the hill, was a common uh, kind of way of talking about one particular city for Israel, Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the city on the hill. It was the city where God dwelled in the temple. God had chosen the people of Israel. The city of David, known as Jerusalem, became the capital center. They built a temple there. God dwelt with Israel there in Jerusalem, a city that was actually 2,500 feet above sea level, it's up on a hill. So the city on a hill, the city on the hill, is Jerusalem, the place where God dwells. Okay, so hold that metaphor. And then hear about light in the Old Testament. When God's talking about light in the Bible, or when light is often referred to, it literally means God's presence, His goodness and presence and truth, driving out evil and darkness. He is the source of life and salvation. Wherever he is, there is light. So it's a metaphor that's meant to draw us in. And in um, Isaiah 49, we get a description of Israel and what they were called to be. God's people, Israel, were meant to be, as it says in verse 49, or chapter 49 of Isaiah, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. What that's talking about is a prophecy that one day God would come in his Messiah and he would take his people, Israel, and make them a light to the nations and that all the kings of the earth would come to them. There's metaphors built into Isaiah 49 of um, reaching the ends of the earth, light driving out darkness, and, and uh, a city of, of Jerusalem. And in the midst of all of that, we're also hearing, we're hearing the prophets cry that Israel never did that. Israel was meant to be a light to the nations, a city on a hill. They were meant to reveal God to the world around them. But by the time of the prophets and in the years leading up to Jesus, they had turned their light inward. 
They had put a basket over it, if you would. They were no longer a city up on a hill. They were a city with a bunch of walls around it to keep people out. But all of it was pointing to the day when Jesus came. And when he comes along and then says, hey, you guys are a city on a hill. You are the light of the world. He's telling the disciples, he's telling us, all Christians, you're the new Jerusalem. Not an actual city, but wherever the people of God are gathered, you are the city of God in that place. You are meant to be the light to the world because God dwells in each one of us and collectively when we are together, he is present with us. And he says a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. There's a, there's a whole other um, side to this idea of a city that I think is a, a way we can think about what maybe we are called to be as a church, as brothers and sisters in Christ. So we have a negative view of cities, or many of us do, depending on your age. Let me put it that way. Depending on your age, a city is a really cool and exciting thing or a dangerous and bad thing. Our modern view of cities is a place where you go to get into trouble or where you go, and if you go there, there may be trouble. Or you go there for financial opportunity, to get rich, to become famous. Those were not the same views of the ancient world. In the ancient world, and especially in Israel in biblical times, cities were essential for survival. They were places of hospitality and safety and law. So in that world, even in Israel that had all the Ten Commandments and all these laws, the only way you had rule of law were in towns or in cities. The judges of a town, the, the police, if you would, would sit, the elders would sit near a town center or by the, the gates of the town, and they would bring justice for people who came. They would rule fairly. Otherwise, if you were out, you could be attacked, robbed. The, the ancient, uh, the, the Bible set up cities of refuge, which basically meant this. If I accidentally ran over uh, Dean's sheep with my tractor, he might come after me because he thought I did it on purpose. And if he's stronger than me, which he is, he could then kill me because that was the rule of law out in the lands. But if I ran to a city of refuge and said, Dean's trying to kill me, I accident accidentally ran over his sheep, I didn't mean to, I'll pay it back, they would make sure that Dean can't just kill me and that I would pay him back, which is fair, but I would be protected. Cities were seen as places of safety. And in a, play, in a world and culture where you didn't have 7-Elevens or hotels, they were the only places you could stop if you were traveling so that you didn't starve to death or run out of water. It was a place of shelter. So if you were a refugee or an immigrant or a traveler, it was from city to city you went. And the rules of hospitality were so great that you were supposed to open up your doors and feed and house any traveler who came through. Cities were seen as places of hope. So Jesus is imagining this when he says, you, you guys, yins, are a city on a hill. What he's having the, the people imagine is a traveler, a traveler walking along, maybe a weary traveler returning home to his city, and he's, he's off, and it's raining, and it's dark, and he's hungry, and maybe hasn't had good food in days, and he's, he's disoriented, but he comes around a bend, and then off in the distance, maybe five, ten miles, is his home city, set up on a hill, lit up. Because again, in that ancient world, there was no electricity. So a city of houses with gas lamps everywhere, uh, oil lamps everywhere, would have been the, the brightest light and obvious place to go. 
The refugee fleeing vengeance, recognizing that if I don't get to a city of refuge, I'll be slaughtered, I'll be killed, sees that city up on a hill at night and is so thankful this is their chance for survival and safety. And that's what a city on a hill is. It was meant to be a place of safety and hospitality and very real hope. So when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill, it's his vision for who we as the church are called to be together. We're called to be a place of refuge and hope for all people. Where and how we and others can experience God and his healing and grace. And I think there's a great need for that right now. You know, there's a, the Surgeon General has identified that we have a loneliness epidemic in the U.S. We've talked about it here before. A recent survey said 22% of adults, that means 70 million Americans, often or always feel isolated or alone. 70% or 70 million, there are 70 million adults. One in five adults feel lonely or isolated often or always. And that means in this room, there are dozens and dozens of people who can identify with that, feeling alone or isolated pretty much all the time or pretty regularly. And our modern way of life doesn't help with our loneliness epidemic. You know, we live transient lives. Most of us do not live in the same town that we were born in or grew up in. Our great-grandparents don't live there either. We move from place to place because of school or economics or other needs. We also are modern people, especially Americans, who are very independent in the way that we do our lives, our financial decisions, whether we move or stay in a city, our vacations, they're all done either by ourselves individually or our nuclear family if we have them. So we do our choices in households. So a household of three or of one or of six, those are making decisions, but without regard really for anybody else. And of course, we've, um, we've spent the past 15 years learning how to be best friends with this, or the equivalent. Look, if, if you're not really kind of tethered to your phone, you are to a laptop, to a TV if you're older. Something is always on. It's how we do social media, it's how we do entertainment. You watch a football game, you watch the news, you're doing your work on a laptop. You're on your phone for entertainment by yourself. All of our social connection, all of our thinking, all of our shopping, Everything we do can be done without anybody else. And that wasn't the case even like 60, 70 years ago. There's a book by Wendell Berry called Jaber Crow. It's a novel about a guy who grows up um, in Kentucky in kind of the 20s, 30s, becomes a single adult barber in a town, a very small town in the 40s and 50s. And what's great about it is he's a guy who kind of didn't really have a great home or kind of a place that he felt from, but he moves into this town, becomes the barber, and over the next 20 years, his barber shop becomes a center, a center of friendships, of entertainment when people come in with stories, of news. If you wanted to know the news, you would go there. People would come into town to shop, to do their business and trading. All the work, play, connections, news, funny stories... They were all done in person, in one place. Now, we do it by ourselves. And we're more isolated and lonely than any culture has ever been. 
In Genesis chapter 2, the Lord calls out about Adam. It is not good that the man should be alone. That is a declaration on humanity. It is not good for us to be alone. We are made by a God who is in relationship, a trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He makes us in His image, which means it's wired, baked into us to be in close relationships with other people. We are not ourselves by ourselves. We are meant to be in a community not just of one other person, but of multiple people. And so there is a real need for things like a local church, healthy local churches, especially if you're transient, have moved around, something to pull us out of ourselves, our work rhythms, our study rhythms, our entertainment rhythms to be together. All of us need encouragement. And my experience has been this too. Being around other people and the more I'm with them, it, it, it sanctifies me. That basically means this, makes me less of a jerk. Because I find that when I am around other people, I'm being confronted with my own sinfulness and brokenness. I didn't know I had a temper problem until I had children. Now, it might be the children's fault, but it's actually me being pushed up against other human beings who don't agree with me all the time. It shapes and forms us. And honestly, it's one of the ways we see God and hear from God. A number of years back, I was going through a season of loss and grief, and I didn't realize how long that had stayed with me. But about a year or two into it, what I also realized was the primary way that God was meeting me, speaking to me, comforting me, even just uh, revealing himself to me was in friendships. It was Christian friends that I was spending time with and just wanted to be around, even to do fun things, silly things, not just to, you know, do kind of church things that I needed to be around other people because God was revealing himself to me through them. Their friendship, their connection was part of God's loving arms wrapping around me. I'm really good at doing alone time, and I've grown better at doing it as I've gotten older, post-pandemic. I can do alone time for a long time. I like to be around people, but I also find that, you know, after a while, I'm not like Corky, basically, who could probably be around people 24-7, and he would be like, it's a gift. But I also know that I need to push into that. I can't just say, oh, well, I'm, I'm a little less extroverted, or they, I get worn out by, and so I'm just going to be by myself for the next 10 days, because I could do that. We are called into community, and that means moving from our households into relationships with other people recognizing that God can speak to us, even if you've never heard from God audibly yourself, through other people, that we need others to shape and form us. God is calling us, His church, to be a part of what He is doing in this world. You know, our vision and values talks about being a gospel-driven, externally focused, extended family, Anglican mission for Vienna, Virginia, and to the world beyond that. Some of those elements in there, like extended family, talk about having relationships with one another across ages, across uh, ethnic and language backgrounds. Being externally focused and for Vienna or for wherever you live means that we're involved and engaged like salt on the meat, like light pushing into the darkness. 
But as I was reflecting on this and our calling as a church in the coming years on my sabbatical, for some reason this came into my head, is that this church has uniquely been gifted um, as a hospital, and I want us to be more intentional about being a home. And somehow this was kind of uh, sitting in my head for a little bit. You know, a hospital is a place you go when you're sick, and here's what I have observed. For a number of years, our church has received people who have come from church backgrounds that have been either negative or abusive or challenging. Some people have come here for a few months and then left and felt like, okay, I can trust the church again. Others have come and stayed. And again, it's people who maybe abandoned Christianity when they were in high school or because of their parents, or they had really bad experiences more recently and they're not sure they can ever come back to a church. They'll end up here for a while and feel like, okay, it's a place where they can heal. And that tells me there's a, there's a calling there. There's a vocation to be a hospital. And that's a, there's a beautiful part about that is Jesus said it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. And it means if we're going to be a hospital to people, we need to be a church that's not just for the good or for the capable or the successful, but for those who are sick and need healing. And it would mean that us as individuals need to be okay admitting that we're not okay. Admit our fears, our failures, that we're lonely, that we have doubts, that we struggle with our identity, and so make it acceptable for others to feel that way too. But the only way we can be vulnerable and humble and allow people to heal in a place like this, including us, is to lean heavily on Jesus. We can do it because we have Jesus, who is our healer. Ray Ortland, who was the founding pastor of Emmanuel Church before he semi-retired a few years ago, he wrote down a description of an, an entrance wording. They're not Anglican, but they have this liturgy they use every Sunday at this church that he borrowed from another church. It's a call to worship, and it begins this way, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, this church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus Christ, the ally of enemies, the defender of the guilty, the justifier of the inexcusable, the friend of sinners. Welcome. And I want us to be a church that cultivates that spirit in our own lives and for one another, to welcome people in the brokenness of our own lives and seek the healing that God offers us in Jesus Christ. And the second is I think that we're called to be a home. And when I say a home, um, I was reflecting on uh, the house that I live in now and, and how it became a home, a place that my kids have grown up in and want to be at even as they're adults now. And a home takes time. A, a, the place you're living in may not feel like home, especially if it's new. A home takes time, it takes memories, it, it, a culture, an ethos that you're creating, and it's because of the people associated with it. 
So when I was growing up, I had a house that I felt like was home. I also had another house that we would go to occasionally that felt like home to me. It was 15 Sycamore in a small town in Pennsylvania. It was my grandparents' home. And it wasn't the nicest of homes. It wasn't because it had all these things all over the place. It was because of the people in it. It created a, a feel, an ethos of welcome and of safety. And that's what a house and a home is. Similar to the city on a hill in the ancient world, a place of refuge, it's a place where a kid can grow up and not feel afraid, not feel like they're going to be exposed. It's in your home that you can have bedhead and be in your pajamas all day long, even if you're not cute when you do it anymore, which after about like age five, six, seven, it's not necessarily cute. But you can do it because you're at home. You don't care, right? You're free to be yourself. In fact, sometimes if you have teenagers, that's when they act the worst. You talk to their teachers, and they're like, oh, she's so nice. Oh, he's so great. And you're like, oh, you haven't seen her at home. In some ways, it's because that's when they're finally free. They can let down their guard. They feel safe, secure, provided for, and they can grow into maturity. Another pastor I met with on my sabbatical, Sam Albury, gave me this phrasing that I think he actually borrowed from the other guy, Ray Ortland, who he worked with. He said, safety plus time plus the gospel is powerful. Hear that again. Safety plus time plus the gospel is powerful. In years past, we as Christians would say, you need the gospel. Come to faith. But now I think there's a place also where a lot of people just need time in a place they feel like they could be safe, or they could be in a church they disagree with. Say, I kind of want to explore it, but I'm not sure. I need time. Do I agree with my parents or not? Like a kid can grow up and feel safe and over time. Many of us just need to feel safe. So that's my calling to us as we think about being a city on a hill, the light of the world, is to be the hospital and home to ourselves, to each other, and to the world outside of us. Because I think that's what this world needs, is places of healing and of safety where they're exposed to Jesus. And the only way we can do it is because we have Jesus, honestly. Jesus is our source of healing and security and rest. And think about it. He was pierced. He was wounded on the cross that we might be healed and forgiven. He was all alone. Everyone abandoned him, forsaken by the Father, that we can be welcomed. And so here again, even if you're here today, and guy's talking too long, but you're feeling a little worn out by life. You doubt whether God exists. You struggle with anxiety, your identity, your marriage. You just feel lonely. The Jesus that we are embodying, that we live out as a community together, said this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Lord God, you created us in your image, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and invited us into relationship with you and to one another to experience the fullness of your love and grace and mercy for us.
We need your healing and your grace. We are thankful for your welcome. Enable us to become the city on the hill for this community, a hospital and a home for the world outside, and for us who are also struggling and weak and need a place to rest. Amen. Show.